Good morning. This is the second week of Lent, second Sunday in Lent. Last week we talked a little bit about how the custom of Lent had come up and what the purpose of it was. We talk about how it's preparing your heart for the celebration of Easter and the resurrection. It was originally, it grew out of that period of reflection that in the early church that people would go through. They typically baptized at Easter. And the weeks leading up to Easter, the people who were preparing to be baptized would just be examining themselves and and seeing if they were in the faith before their Mm -hmm. baptism. And it became a time for the rest of the church as well to kind of take a look at themselves and reorient their thinking towards what towards the meaning of Easter and what that meant as for them as being part of a new creation. We talked a little bit last week about baptism marking that demarcation between one life and another one. And how sometimes sometimes nowadays we don't take seriously enough the fact that when we were baptized into the faith we really were translated out of one way of doing things and into another. And whether or not we recognize that that's what happened, that is what happened. And so this is a very good period for bringing our, our hearts into alignment with that. And this week we're going to look at some, a part of that journey. And this is a difficult part of the journey because this is the journey towards Easter. And we know Easter because we're after the cross. We know Easter and we, of course, think of the resurrection But today we're going to be looking at Easter as walking towards something solely in faithfulness to God when there's nothing you can look at that gives you an indication that there's anything to hope for in it. So we're going to start with chapter 17 of Genesis, this conversation of God, these words of God directed at Abraham. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and your your descendants and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And then down in verse 15, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings and peoples will come from her. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir that he would be heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith for if those who depend on the law are heirs faith means nothing and the promise is worthless 
because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Abraham and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it is it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, in the 31st verse, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you have not in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns." Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then we're going to finish in Psalm 22, starting in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied, and those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him, and future generations will be told about the Lord, 
They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring, yet, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. The word of the Lord. You may have noticed that we didn't follow a typical sequence of texts there. We started in the Old Testament and went directly to the letters, then came back to a gospel and finished in a, in a psalm. And there's a reason that I did the reading in this, uh, structured the reading this way. This is rock-solid at the heart of the gospel of what God wanted to do, of what God wants to do, of the gospel, of the story of redemption. We believe that God's original intent was good, that he made a good creation to dwell in with us, that he intended us for fellowship with him. And through the poor choices of our forefathers, that relationship became damaged and broken and all of creation suffered. And the gospel tells us that God was not willing to abandon his creation, to abandon us, but began to put in place a plan for its restoration through his son ultimately. And the beginning of that plan was the calling of Abram. God picked this man to be the beginning of his plan. He said, I am going to make a great nation out of you, and through you the world will be blessed. There was nothing special about Abram compared to the people around him except that he listened to God and he believed God. (coughs) He is, in many ways, a wonderful kind of father of faith, but not in the ways I thought when I first became a Christian. Because when I first became a Christian... The gospel was presented as a very, very attractive thing, you know, glistening and happy. And it, it, there is great joy in it. And I, actually, it's far better than it was originally presented to me. But it was originally presented as kind of this uninterrupted <clears throat> stream of, of happiness and, and faith. And you talked about the heroes of the faith and their great faith. But you didn't actually dig in. You, you would quote the the statements about their faith, but you didn't actually dig in and see what the walking out of that faith looked like. Here we have a culminating scene in the life of Abram. He's already left his home. He's been obedient to the call of God. He's left his home, and he's already received a promise that he would have a son through God, but he did not act on that with perfect faith. The first thing he tried to do, and got together with his wife and said, well, God's going to give us a son. We'll, we'll help him along. Here's, here's my handmaiden. Have, have a child by the handmaiden. It'll be your child and everything will, will go forward fine. That, that turned out to be a very bad idea. And in fact, it caused division and splitting. And it's going to cause trouble going forward. We're going to see that a lot. That these people that God calls who he works through, who are faithful, but there are missteps. And that's a great comfort to me because I am constantly making missteps. 
So it is great comfort to me to know that I am walking in the footsteps of my forefather Abram. God delivers him. God brings him through many things. God causes him to prosper. But when it comes to the test, Abraham falls down a lot. In fact, after this section that we're looking at here, 17, Abraham's going to repeat something he did earlier. He's going to be traveling through a part of the land and he's going to be noticed by the king of that land, him and his family, and the king's going to notice how pretty his wife is. And Abraham is going to panic and say, oh, that's my sister. He's already done this once. He did this before this with Pharaoh in Egypt. And he's going to do it again with a king named Abimelech and actually bring a curse on the place he's staying. The man who is called to be bringing a blessing to the nations, the first thing he's going to do is bring a curse because he's going to stumble. But that stumble isn't the whole story. So when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Abraham is still held up to us in Scripture. Paul will write about him as an example of faith, despite despite what he's done. God has said, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. We know his his actions are not what we would consider blameless, but there is something, there's something about Abraham that lets God say, walk before me and be blameless and honor that in his life, even with his stumbles. I will make my covenant between you and will greatly increase your numbers. And Abraham fell down. He was worshiped God. He's like, you're no longer going to be called Abram. You're going to be called Abraham. You're going to be the father of many nations. And I'm going to make you fruitful. He had no reason, nothing he could look at in his life that would suggest that that could happen. He's 99 years old. Generally, if you reach the age of 99 without fathering children... It's a pretty good bet that going forward, you're not going to father children. But God tells him that's not how this is going to work. And he believes him. Many times, many times in the life of believers, God brings us to places. And if we're serious about following him, we'll find ourselves coming to places where God asks us to do something that we have no track record of doing. But not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God will bring us through those things. And the thing about that is, it's a cliche, but it's very true. If you want to get somewhere you've never been, you're going to have to go through things you've never done before. If you're starting out on the Appalachian Trail, (laughs) there's no way to get through Maine with get to Maine without going through Tennessee and worst of all, Pennsylvania. That's just part of the journey. But if you want to get there, you have to step out. If you want to get to the end of the story, you have to do the things that are asked of you. Now, things were already going pretty good for Abram. He could have said, well, it's it's kind of enough. He had followers, he had livestock, he had his nephew with him, 
he was already growing to be a power. He was already somebody that could go to the aid of kings when they were in trouble. But that wasn't the call God had on his life. That was part of what would go along with it, but that wasn't the call itself. The call was, I'm going to make you the father of nations. Nothing in his past would lead him to believe that. His wife is past the age of bearing children. Now, I've, I've, I've seen pastors try and, and put a, a nail in this by saying, can you imagine, you know, she's probably near 99. Can you even imagine the thought of trying to have a kid with somebody like that? Well, yes and no, because this is still a woman who's so beautiful that kings will, that Abraham's worried that kings will murder him for her. It just means she's past the age of childbearing. But she is past the age of childbearing. Women her age do not bear children. But that's the promise of God, and Abraham believed it. Now, when we get to Romans, there's something, it, it doesn't come across with quite the same force in translation. But when Paul says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, the actual language he's there is, it was credited to him as covenant faithfulness. So to a Jew reading that, it's like, oh, his belief was credited to him as if he had fulfilled the deeds of the law. And that's important. Because when we believe God, when we follow God, when we step out with God, even when it looks like there's no prospect, we are fulfilling what we are meant to do in our relationship with him. We're fulfilling it in a way that following the the intricacies and the individual commandments of the law can't do. We're arriving at what they point at. We're arriving at that covenant faithfulness, but we're arriving at when we say, okay, God, I believe you. I'm not going to look at my circumstances. I'm not going to look at what my past has been. My past is not relevant to what you're calling me to walk forward into now. I believe you, and I will walk in that. And that's hard. And at least for me, on a good day, Abraham's faulty walk looks much better than my best. But still, that's the hope we have. That when we follow God, we satisfy what it means to be in relationship with God. And through that, God can use us to advance his plan of redemption. Well, this brings us to the gospel selection in Mark. I've talked before about this time in history, how the nation of Israel was restored to their land, but not to their kingdom. And they were looking for further redemption. There was a sense in which they felt they'd never fully come back from the exile. They've never fully come back to that plan of God that he started in Abraham. And they were looking for a Messiah. And they were expecting a Messiah as a king, as a conquering king, who's going to kick out the Romans, who's going to cleanse the land. Depending on which group you were, one he was going to restore faithful, faithful worship in the temple. Now, I don't think at this point 
that Jesus' disciples, who'd been with him long enough, expected exactly that. But I know they didn't expect what was going to happen because we get this scene between Peter and Jesus. He said he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. His faithful disciple, who's been with him all the time, the fisher of men. This is a guy who's already done miracles in Jesus' name. And he says, no, no, that's not the way it's going to go, Jesus. And being a sensitive and well-trained pastor, Jesus says, now, now, Peter, you don't understand. No, he says, listen, Satan, you don't know what you're saying. Jesus can do that because he's Jesus. Not, not recommended as a, as a uh, technique for, for pastoral counseling. See, you, somebody comes into your office and you say, hello, Satan. You're probably, you know, the session's not going to go well from there. No matter how much you might be tempted. <laughs> and then he tells them, he says, you don't have in mind the things and concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then we get to this really interesting part, which has been misused a lot. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And this is the part that people tend to misunderstand. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with his holy angels. Now, people read that and they'll be like, oh, you, you can't be ashamed of Jesus. You got to be bold. You know, when you go to school, if you, you know, if, if you don't let everybody know you're a Christian, then when God comes back, he'll be ashamed of you. Have you ever heard it used that way as, as a shame driver? You know, that's eh, you. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed to be a Christian. That's not what's going on here. He is telling them plainly, I am the Messiah. I am going to die and be crucified. This is not a pretty sight. This is not, we, we cannot fully appreciate the, the true scope of the scandal of the cross. If you see pictures of Jesus on the cross... We, we are sanitized people. We want to make things clean. They always give him a little loincloth. Uh-uh. You're crucified naked. One of the things that happens when you die, all your muscles go slack. It's very shameful. Your bowel and your bladder is going to empty. The Romans loved that because it utterly humiliated. There was no dignity left to a person who was crucified. It was utterly shameful and shaming you talk about having a dream where you show up to class naked this is worse this is far worse you're killed in front of me this is the ultimate sign of failure if you follow jesus you're saying that your view of the messiah that your messiah went through that that is a hard pill to swallow if you're a faithful jew that is a really hard pill to swallow. 
and it made many people turn away. How can that be your Messiah? This is going to actually be one of the one of the knocks against Christians for the next 300 years in the Roman Empire. You will find anti-Christian graffiti in places and there'll be so and so worships his god and there'll be a little picture of a guy and there will be a donkey on a cross because to the Romans no you can't have a god who goes through that. Gods are people of power. Gods are people who demonstrate their power in floods and in thunder and in disaster. Gods are people that you have to make happy, otherwise your life will come crashing down. Your God can't be someone who will suffer humiliation like that and die like that. How can that be your God? And oh, by the way, he's just called you to follow him in that? You know, what, what happened to, ooh, when you come in your kingdom, can, can we sit on your right and sit on your left? You really want to be on my right and my left? Like those, those places are prepared for the people God prepared them for. But you're also going to have to go through what I go through. There's not really a good way in our modern society to point out how utterly humiliating, shameful, and hopeless that is. If anything is going to make you lose hope, it's going to be that. Because if you know the history of the nation of Israel, if you know the power that brought the nation out of Egypt, if you know the the power that, you know, fire on the mountain consuming the prophets of Baal, that's, that's the history of God you're thinking of. And now it's coming to this? God, how can that work? How, how can that bring about what you intend? I don't understand it, God. But that's what we have to walk through. Now, as Christians on the other side of the cross, we know the story doesn't stop there. But there is a time in the life of the church when all they know is they're called to walk towards that. And yes, in three days he'll rise again. But one of the things we know is that they would argue about what that meant because they had no idea what that meant. In three days he'll rise again? What does that mean? Does that mean you'll not really dead and you're going to come back with your army and, and wipe everybody? No, it was, it was something they didn't even expect. And that's why we finish up with the psalm. Now, Psalm 22, we're starting at verse 23. But if you know your psalms, you'll know that this was the psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the first part of this psalm, the part before where we join it, is a description of what it's like to be surrounded by your enemies and to experience that that time of shame. But it doesn't end there. The work of the cross doesn't end there. This psalm ends with, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, because he has not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before you, those 
before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. And we get this picture of restoration and abundance. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the riches of all the rich of the earth will feed all, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, but he'll keep them alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim in his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Through all this, through all this hopelessness, through all this walking straight into shame, it's going to bring about the glory of God. It's going to bring about redemption. In this season of Lent, let's remember what it's like when you're walking towards the cross. Now, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and we celebrate in that triumph. And that's our ultimate hope in anything we go through. But let's not be afraid to dwell for a little bit in that, that position of being called, knowing we're called to something but not knowing in any way how that can happen. Let's not be afraid to dwell there because with God, we know that after that, resurrection comes.